Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Not in God's House. It's based upon the lectionary readings for March 7th, 2021, the third Sunday in Lent. Among the many changes that the COVID-19 pandemic has brought into our lives is a change in how we define and do church. What is church these days? Is it the live stream service we watch on YouTube? Is it the gathering of the faithful over Zoom? Is it the private devotional time we spend with God in our living rooms? Whatever it is, it is not business as usual. For better or for worse, our global circumstances have forced us to change, to question, to deepen our comprehension of what church means. I know that for many of us, this has been an occasion for sorrow. We wish we could go back to how things were. But even in our grief and longing, I wonder if God is issuing a hidden invitation. A hidden invitation to reimagine, develop, evolve, and grow. A hidden invitation to ask the most basic, ground-level questions about what we're doing and why. In our Gospel reading this week, Jesus forces exactly these kinds of questions. The story is a difficult and perhaps even offensive one. The Jesus we'd rather keep tender and soft-spoken, makes a whip of cords, drives sacrificial animals out of the temple, overturns tables, pours coins all over the floor, and tells the money changers to stop making his father's house a marketplace. When his stunned audience asks for a sign to authorize his violent actions, Jesus doesn't bat an eye. Destroy this temple, he dares them and in three days I will raise it up. Not exactly gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Biblical scholars have different theories about the story. Some argue that what Jesus calls out in his cleansing of the temple is not Judaism or its various forms of worship, but a system of exploitation via exorbitant tithes and taxes that blocks equal access to the divine, keeping the poor outside the gates of the temple and forcing them into more and endless debt before they can approach God. Others argue that what displeases Jesus is a Sabbath-only form of piety that separates temple rite from holy living, or a compartmentalization of faith that renders the temple sacred and the home secular. Professor of New Testament Amy Jill Levine is a proponent of these latter views and makes a compelling analogy from the lection to our contemporary Christian lives. Quote, the church member sins during the work week, either by doing what is wrong or by failing to do what is right. Then on Sunday morning, the same individual, perhaps convinced of their personal righteousness, heartily sings the hymns, happily shakes the hands of others, and generously puts a $50 bill in the collection plate. That makes the church a den of robbers, a cave of thieves. It becomes a safe place for those who are not truly repentant and who do not truly follow what Jesus asks. The church becomes a place of showboating, not of fishing for people. End quote. In my mind, all of these interpretations are compelling and all point to a deeper and more unsettling truth about the one we call Lord. When it comes to our spiritual lives, both individual and collective, Jesus is not about business as usual. Jesus is not a protector of the status quo. Jesus has no interest in propping up institutions of faith that elevate comfort and complacency over holiness and justice. No, Jesus is a disruptor, a leveler, an upender. 
As his disciples immediately realize when he throws out the money changers and occupies the temple, zeal is what animates the Messiah. Fervor, not casualness, depths, not surfaces. He will not tolerate the desecration of his father's house. He is not impressed by marketplace faith. Where does this, this leave us as Christians and churchgoers? What can we carry away from this disturbing story as we move deeper into Lent, a season of penitence and self-examination? Perhaps we can begin by asking honest questions about our reactions to the story itself. How do we feel about Jesus' posture, language, tone, and actions in the temple? Are we offended by his anger, his violence, his zeal? If yes, why? What cherished version of God, church, piety, or worship does Jesus threaten in this narrative? And then, what are we passionate about when it comes to our faith? What are we most inclined to defend, to protect, to hoard? What are we zealous for as members of the body of Christ? Is zeal even on the radar anymore, or have we settled for a way of being Christian that is more rote, safe, casual, and comfortable than it is disorienting? challenging, transformative, and missional. We don't hear much about anger in mainline churches these days. After all, there's something unseemly about rage, right? Something unsophisticated, something crude. It's not polite to get angry, and it's positively insupportable to stay angry. But Jesus, the temple of God, burns with zeal for his Father's house. He doesn't use love and forgiveness as palliatives. He allows a holy anger to move him to action on behalf of a more robust, equitable, holistic, and impassioned spiritual practice. In the story of the temple cleansing, there is nothing godly about responding to complacency or injustice with passive acceptance or unexamined complicity. Jesus interrupts business as usual for the sake of justice and holiness. He interrupts worship as usual for the sake of justice and holiness. His love for God, the temple, and its people compels him to righteous anger. If we ourselves are temples, holy places where heaven and earth meet, then what would it be like to work, as Jesus does, to preserve and protect all bodies, all holy places, all temples, from every form of irreverence and desecration? What would it be like to decide that our highest calling as Christians is not to niceness? In her widely influential essay, The Power of Anger in the Work of Love, Beverly Harrison writes, quote, The important point is that where feeling is evaded, where anger is hidden or goes unattended, masking itself, there the power of love, the power to act to deepen relation, atrophies and dies. End quote. Where, I'm asking myself during this Lenten season, has my power to act, to deepen relationship or to love fiercely, atrophied? Where has my faith become so rote, so abstract, so disembodied, that I no longer find it natural or easy to rejoice with those who rejoice or mourn with those who mourn? Where am I refusing to ask the hard questions, the questions that will pull me into uncharted and risky territory for the sake of the Church, Christ's body? Whenever the pandemic winds down, our communities open up, and we find ourselves free to return to business as usual on Sunday mornings, I hope we won't. I hope we'll remember Jesus who upended the temple when it forgot how to be the Father's house. I hope we'll burn with the passion that animated the whip-wielding, coin-scattering Christ. I hope we'll settle for nothing less than churches that are, truly, houses of prayer, 
welcome, freedom, and hope for all nations. For books this week, Dan reviews Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng. Celeste Ng grew up in Shaker Heights, a wealthy suburb of Cleveland that was founded in 1912 as the first planned community in the United States. So she knows her subject, and you can't help but wonder what her friends think of her second novel that is set in their hometown. Shaker Heights is a place of order, decorum, and conformity, a place where you play by the rules. You cut your grass, keep your trash cans tidy, and paint your picket fence, but only in certain colors that are allowed, lest you risk a fine by the city. Your friends go to the orthodontist, load up on AP classes, and matriculate at prestigious colleges. Ng went to Harvard. Mom and Dad go to the country club, require dress code. Shaker Heights is a place that works very hard to avoid the unseemly, the unpleasant, and the disastrous. The key to a successful life in this suburban sanctuary, or is it a prison, observes the do-gooder Elena Richardson, quote, was to avoid conflagration. True, she had to give up a few things here and there, but if you followed all the rules, you would succeed, and if you didn't, you might burn the world to the ground. And that's exactly how Eng begins her novel, with the literal and catastrophic conflagration that serves as the central metaphor of the book. Quote, the fireman said that there were little fires everywhere. That's an understatement. Elena and her husband, Bill Richardson, an attorney, of course, have four children, one of whom is a black sheep, the wild card, and the nutcase. Their other three kids do what teenagers do. They disrupt all the decorum. Bill and Elena rent their second home to an unconventional and nomadic woman with a mysterious past. Mia is a free-spirited artist, gasp, with her own teenage daughter, Pearl. And together they do precisely what you're not supposed to do in Shaker Heights. They shatter the status quo. At the beginning of the book, Aang includes part of an original advertisement for Shaker Heights. It promised its customers that in addition to the community's golf course, horse riding, tennis, boating, and unexcelled schools, a home, there also included protection forever against unwanted change. Aang's novel deconstructs that false premise. Social conformity cannot forestall disaster, not in Shaker Heights, nor in any other place. For films this week, Dan reviews The Social Dilemma. Director Jeff Orlowski's new Netflix documentary repudiates the wishful thinking that technology is a neutral tool and that what matters is how we use it. Yes, technology has benefited the entire world in numerous ways, but there's also a consensus now among some of our elite technologists, many of whom are featured in this film, that there is a dark side to the digital world in general, and in particular to the behemoths like Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple. Big data is now the new oil, which is why some people call it an extraction industry. Big data is so big that it's hard to comprehend. Back in 2016, ProPublica collected more than 52,000 unique attributes that Facebook has used to classify individual users. But the real force multiplier is metadata, or the data about the data, like where you were when you bought ice cream on Tuesday, what flavor you bought, how many times you have been to that store, what model of car you were driving, who was in the car with you, the precise time of day, every single post you've made on Facebook, what time you go to bed and wake up, etc. Metadata has unimaginable value because of its nearly incomprehensible scale and its ability to create powerful algorithms to manipulate our behavior. Metadata gave rise to the aphorism that users are not the customer, they are the product. Thanks to the algorithms that are based upon metadata, it is a tool of incredible behavioral prediction and manipulation. 
Artificial intelligence that uses such metadata has what Roger McNamee calls nearly perfect information about us. So, critics are also warning us of mass behavioral addiction. The average user spends about three hours a day looking at their smartphone screen. Only 12% spent less than an hour. In one study by the research firm Discoot, the average number of touches, taps, swipes, and clicks was 2,617 per person per day. This mass behavioral addiction is not an accident, nor is it a character flaw in the user. Rather, it is the result of carefully engineered designs by the technology companies. Indeed, it is their very business model. The science of engineering compulsion is called persuasive technology, which is the title of the gold standard book on the subject by the Stanford professor B.J. Fogg. You can take a course on it at many universities. Persuasive technology is a complex combination of software architecture, applied psychology, behavioral economics, propaganda, variable reward, and techniques that are used to program slot machines. The goal is not mere engagement with an app or a site, it is addiction. Tristan Harris, a former Google design ethicist who narrates much of this film and who took Fogg's course at Stanford, calls it brain hacking. Similarly, says McNamee, with persuasive technologies, artificial intelligence has a high bandwidth connection directly into the cerebral cortex of more than 2 billion humans who have no idea what they are up against. But if you watch this film, you can in fact know the long odds that we face to reclaim our personal, social, and political freedom. And lastly, for poetry, on this third Sunday in Lent, Having Confessed by Patrick Kavanaugh. Having confessed, he feels that he should go down on his knees and pray for forgiveness for his pride, for having dared to view his soul from the outside, lie at the heart of the emotion, time has its own work to do. We must not anticipate or awaken for a moment. God cannot catch us unless we stay in the unconscious room of our hearts. We must be nothing, nothing that God may make us something. We must not touch the immortal material. We must not daydream tomorrow's judgment. God must be allowed to surprise us. We have sinned, sinned like Lucifer by this anticipation. Let us lie down again deep in anonymous humility, and God may find us worthy material for his hand. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for March 7th, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.